you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Uh, good morning, City on a Hill. So we'll just open up our Bibles, get out our phones and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're starting at verse 1 to 11. And while you do that, I'll just introduce myself. I'm Anya. I'm a part of the Bayswater GC family. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Anya. You can hold on to that one. Hey, good morning. Sit on a hill. It's so good to be with you. For those of you who I haven't met yet, my name is Neil. I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Sit on a Hill. Uh, This morning, this week, uh, Nick is on the celebrity preacher trail. Uh, kind of, he's up in Sit on a Hill, Wollongong, preaching for them up there as they get prepared to launch uh, formally their, their church plant there uh, coming up this Easter. A huge shout out to those who are joining us online this morning. Uh, thank you so much that you've chosen to join us and so glad that you are with us. Uh, how about we pray as we dive into the word this morning? Gracious Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning and uh, we are just so thankful for your word to us. Lord, we pray that uh, you might be uh, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and tongues to taste and your beauty and your glory. Lord, would you just be doing the, just the miraculous work of revealing yourself to us, transforming our hearts and minds to be more like Christ. And I pray that just in everything that I say this morning, I will be well-pleasing in your sight. pray these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Uh, well, C.S. Lewis's classic story, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I'm sure many of you know, is, uh, is set back in 1940. Uh, and the very beginning of the story actually begins in London in World War II, if you remember that moment. Uh, And in that, London is under attack by just constant 
air raids. Uh, and so the, the children, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, they're, they're sent away. They're, they're, they needed to be somewhere safer, somewhere away from the war, away from danger. And so they come to stay at this large property with a professor. But there, uh, they are transported through a wardrobe into another world, into Narnia. But in Narnia, there is a, a different war that is raging. And, and as soon as they arrive, they are, they are caught up in this war. And so in order to uh, protect themselves, uh, none other than Santa Claus, Father Christmas, he turns up and he, he gives them gifts. But the, the gifts that he gives them are specific weapons that they need to fight the war that they are now part of. And so you get this picture that, that even though they've been whisked away to, to safety from the, the war that was going on in the physical world from World War II, they're, they're now engaged in a very different war with a, with a different enemy on a different battleground, with different battle lines. And the war is fought with different weapons. And it's their, their willingness and their, their, their readiness and their ability to, to use those specific weapons that they've been given determines whether or not they will be successful. And likewise, like, like it or not, or whether or not you, you realise it or not, you and I, we're also in a war. Yes, the, the victory has been won by Jesus, but the, but the battle still rages on, that there is real spiritual danger in this world in which we live. And, and we see this all the way through the book of First Peter. For example, back in uh, chapter 2, verses, verse 11, as we've seen, talks about the, the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. And then later on in chapter 5, it talks about the, the, uh, the devil who, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And now Peter's point is in saying these kinds of things is, is not to you know, kind of wig you out or, 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 or freak you out, make you panic, but to prepare you so that you know how it is that you are meant to live as a Christian. So, so that you accurately understand life in this world as someone who is not living for themselves, but is living for God. And one of the, the biggest mistakes that we can make is to, is to, is to misunderestimate the, the, the seriousness of the war. It is to under, underestimate the, the danger that exists and to underestimate the, the nature of the enemies that we face. And one of the, the key battlegrounds of the Christian life is the battleground of suffering. Where we're kind of in a, in a bit of a, a three-week mini-series uh, on suffering in this book of 1 Peter. Uh, it's actually one of the, the kind of the major themes of the book. And Nick kicked us off last week and he was considering how it is that we are to endure suffering in the face of being persecuted for being a Christian. And so today we're going to kind of look at that from a slightly different angle and consider the, the suffering that comes when we're just simply just trying to be obedient to God. 
All right, so we're going to dive into our text. We're just going to be kind of walking through verse by verse this morning. So I love it if you've got your Bibles. Have them open there with you. They'll be on the screen as well. That, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says this. So since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, as we're reading this, there might be a, a, a number of kind of questions that jump out to you from this verses. So one is, you know, what, what does it mean here when it says uh, that we have ceased from sin? Uh, well, we know that it can't mean that, that you know, you'll, you'll, you'll never sin again, that, that somehow through suffering we can achieve some kind of sinless perfection. You know, we know that that's not consistent with, with other things that Peter says or what Scripture says. And what does it mean when it says, uh, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Does it mean that uh, like suffering kind of in and of itself somehow causes us to, to cease from sin and so we should try and pursue suffering as a way to try and purify ourselves? Well, no, I mean, there's many people throughout history have, have thought that and, and tried that, and so they've, they've tried to kind of purify themselves or, or atone for their sin by, by deliberately suffering as a way of trying to uh, expel sin and sinful desire from their hearts. The problem with that is, that is that for many people, it's actually in the midst of their suffering is actually when they sin all the more. And so what does this mean? So have a, back, have a look back to the start of verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So those are key words. Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And so here we see that there's a, there's a clear link here to Christ's own suffering in the flesh. His physical suffering that he endured. That's the key. Okay, but, but we know that Jesus was sinless. That he himself, he didn't need to cease from sin. His suffering wasn't so that he would cease from sin. So, so that whoever in this passage refers to us, it doesn't refer to Christ. So how is it that, that Christ's suffering results in us ceasing from sin? Well, it's because Christ's suffering was the result of his obedience. See, Christ, Christ didn't go, and pursue, go out to pursue suffering. He, he didn't go after it for suffering's sake. No, no, if, if he wasn't obedient to the Father, then he wouldn't have suffered like he did. But because he was obedient, because he remained faithful, he continued to suffer. And so the, the suffering that is in view here is the, the, the suffering that comes when we are just being obedient to God the Father. And so what he's saying is this, that if you are willing to suffer in order to be obedient to God, then that is evidence that the, that the nerve center of sin has been severed from your life. The nerve center of sin has been severed from your life. 
Okay, so how do we, how do we apply this to ourselves? How is it that we actually make this connection in our daily lives between Christ's suffering in the flesh and how we live? Well, Peter says that we are to arm ourselves. Now, arm yourself there is a, it's a, it's a military term. Uh, he uses to, which means to, to, to put on armor and to, to pick up weapons that you can fight with to protect yourself. These are the weapons that we need to fight our enemies. Now, you, you only need to arm yourself when there's danger. Now, in my house, uh, if you're not armed with a Nerf gun or a lightsaber, there, there's every chance that you're going to get ambushed at some point by my eight-year-old boy. But we need to arm ourselves because there's actually real danger. There's real danger that we face from real enemies. And the Bible talks about three enemies that we face in this war. And we see actually each of these enemies throughout First Peter. So the first one we see is the Satan or, Satan, or the devil. As we mentioned before, in 5.8, it says... Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So there's, there's our first enemy, the, the devil. Second, we see that there's, there's the world. There's the things that lure us away in this world, that, that lure us away from Christ, and they, they tempt us to sin. And we actually see that in our passage today in 3 and 4. So there's, there's the devil. There's the world, and then the final one is our, own, is our own sinful desires. And we saw this a few weeks ago in Peter as well, as we said before. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And we see that too in our, in our passage today. Verse 2. Chapter 4 says, So to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so the, the devil and the world and our own sinful desires, they're the three enemies that we do battle with. These are the three enemies that, that Scripture is constantly warning us about. So our battle, our enemies, is not against flesh and blood. It's, it's not against other people. It's not against governments. But notice one of the things that isn't our enemy. Suffering. Suffering here isn't our enemy. So we, we, we so easily get, get lulled into thinking that, that our great enemy in this life is just, just any form of suffering. Anything that threatens our comfort. Anything that kind of threatens our goals and our dreams. Anything that gets in the way of our success, anything that, that gets in the way of, of life just kind of turning out how we'd hoped it would. And when we care more about protecting ourselves from, from, from the pain and suffering that we might experience in our life than from protecting ourselves from the enemies that we actually truly face, we're going to be in trouble. And so... If you try to use Jesus to just protect yourself from suffering, perhaps you, you try to be faithful 
to God, believing that, that somehow if you're, if you're obedient and you're faithful to him, then he's going to owe you blessing. Then, then when life doesn't kind of go to plan and, and things starts to hurt, you begin to wonder why it doesn't work. And it's because you've got the enemy wrong. And when that happens, you, and when pain and hurt and suffering comes along, rather than trusting God, you'll end up blaming him. And in that, you'll, you'll never have or find any reasons to be thankful to him. That, that you'll never end up worship him because you're, you're too busy actually wondering when he's going to actually fix all the problems in your life. There, there ends up being no joy in your life. And you end up sucking the joy out of those around you. And all you'll end up doing is just compounding your own suffering because you can't see how it is that God might actually let this happen to you. And in the midst of that, while that's going on, your real enemies, the, the devil, the, the world around you, your own sinful desires, will just be having just an absolute field day with you. And, and so if you think deep down that actually suffering itself is the problem, all that will do is make that suffering worse. So we don't, we don't obey God to avoid suffering. Rather, obedience to God and the suffering that might result because of that obedience, that's the battleground upon which this war is fought. That's the battleground of your life. And so you need to arm yourself. You need to arm yourself not to protect yourself from suffering. You need to arm yourself so that you can endure suffering in order to be obedient to God. One of the things I love about this book of Peter is that it's written by Peter. Uh, and what I love about Peter is, is just how human he is in Scripture. I mean, if you, if you look at the Gospels, like, the guy's just all over the place. You know, one moment he's kind of, you know, killing it and he's getting it all right. And then the next moment he just, you know, says something stupid. I don't know about you, but I, I can kind of relate to that, right? Uh, in Matthew 16, we see an example of this where, where Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. And, and Peter nails it. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes. Yes, that's right. And, and you are so ridiculously blessed because it's God, Peter, who has actually revealed this to you. You get it. And this confession that you've just made, that's what I'm going to actually build my church on. And then literally, three verses later, when Jesus starts unpacking how that has to come about and how he has to die, Peter goes, no, 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 no. Now you're not going to go. You're not going to die. And so from Peter, yeah, you've nailed it. Jesus says, "Get behind me, Satan." We saw again a few weeks ago. We recounted that time when when Jesus was was in the garden with his disciples, and the mob turns up to to arrest him. And so Peter grabs out his sword and kind of wants to go all braveheart, but he's there. He wants to fight. He wants to fight these battle-hardened soldiers and he's willing to die for Jesus. And then just a few hours later, a teenage servant girl comes to him and says, hey, you're one of the guys who knows Jesus. And in that moment, 
He denies even knowing him. And all of a sudden, he'd, he'd rather sin against his Savior than suffer for him. See, see, Peter knows just exactly how important this is. Peter knows the danger we face. So we had to arm ourselves. But what is the weapon that we are to arm ourselves with? Verse 1 says, arm yourself with this way of thinking. Okay, so how is it that a, a particular way of thinking becomes armor? How, how does that get weaponized? Uh, if you were uh, a Christian back in the 90s, early 2000s perhaps, you remember the, the hottest item on the Christian market, the, the one that you had to have to mark you out as being a Christian was the classic WWJD wristband. Right, now, if you're not sure what that means, it stands for, what would Jesus do? And the idea was, as corny as they kind of were, the idea was that if you, as you wore it on your wrist, it would serve as just a, a constant reminder that in any situation that you were to, to think and act like Jesus. Now, kind of ironically, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I heard a report that the most stolen item from Christian bookstores was the WWJD bands. But these bands, they were, they were a way of arming yourself. Get it? It's kind of a bit of a pun there. Um, good jokes, Neil. And so Peter said that there's, there's a way of thinking. That there's a particular resolve and conviction that Christ had when he suffered in the flesh. That if, that if we have that, that if we arm ourselves with it, if we arm ourselves with that resolve... And that way of thinking, that that would protect our souls and spare us from destruction. That the the call for you is to ensure that you're thinking the way Christ thought. Okay, so what is this way of thinking that that Peter is actually referring to? Well, we're going to rewind a little bit in the letter, and we're going to look at where Peter actually talks about Christ's suffering. So flick back to chapter 2. Uh, We covered this a a couple of weeks ago, but let's see how this applies here. Chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so let's follow in the steps so we can think how Christ thought. Verse 22 says, He committed no sin. And so to to think like Jesus means that I'm going to resolve not to sin, even in the midst of suffering, or even if it means that I suffer. And so my my obedience, that might lead to suffering, but I'm not going to sin my way into suffering. That's the first one. Let's keep going. He says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And so to, to think like Jesus means that, that when, I'm, when I'm threatened by suffering, I'm, I'm not going to lie to try and get my way out of it. I'm not gonna, to, to, there's not going to be deceit in order to try and ease that suffering a little bit. I mean, that's, that's tempting, right? Like a little lie to maybe just ease that suffering a little bit. There's no deceit. Verse 23 says, When he was reviled, 
he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And so to think like Jesus means I'm going to resolve that I'm not going to repay evil with evil. So if, if people sin against me, I'm, I'm not going to sin in return. And lastly, it says, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So to think like Jesus means that I know that even if I suffer unjustly, that I don't need to get revenge, that I don't need to become bitter, don't need to throw a tantrum, I don't need to, to take things into my own hands, because I know that ultimately God will judge and justice will be done. And so you see how they, these aren't, you know, kind of just pithy sayings or, or cliches. No, this is, this is actually really practical. This, this way of thinking is your armor. This is arming yourself with a, with a deep resolve to, to live like Christ because you're convinced that, that if you are going to be faithful to Jesus, there's every likelihood that you're going to suffer and you need to be prepared. And notice what, what this isn't. This isn't that we, that we arm ourselves with our feelings. Right? Feelings and emotions, they're, they're an important part of who we are, but, but feelings make really bad armor. Feelings make, and emotions make, make really bad weapons. But we have this, this idea, don't we, that, that, the, that the highest virtue there is, is is being true to yourself. And to be true to yourself means that, that you are uh, governed primarily about by how it is that you feel at any given moment. That, that you're governed by your feelings and emotions because that's truly who you are. And so you start thinking things like, well, I know the Bible says not to be unequally yoked. But, you know, I just really feel like, like God is, is going to, to use me to, to bring this person to Jesus. Or, you know, God has, has given me these desires, and so I just kind of feel like it would be, you know, really dishonest, and, and I'd be being unfaithful if I didn't pursue them. Or, you know, I just, I just don't feel like there's any spark or, or love left in our marriage. And I feel like he's, God is okay with us, you know, getting separated and divorced because, you know, he wouldn't want me to be unhappy and, and then we could both find love again and then maybe, you know, that way we could even serve God even better. And then if you ever, you know, go against how you feel, then, then you're committing the, the cardinal sin of, of not being true to yourself. But God didn't save you so that you could be true to yourself. Jesus died for you and God saved you so that you would die to yourself and be true to him. That takes us to to verse 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So this, 
this verse. It draws for us the, the battle lines of the war. It's a battle between two kingdoms. And so whenever there's temptation, whenever you're, you're being lured away and enticed, whenever there's, there's conflict and, and whenever there's suffering, these are the battle lines. It's a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. Will you live for yourself, for, for human passions, or will you live for God? And what you need to know is that at the, at the bottom of every struggle that you face, every, every temptation, the, the root of every conflict, the, the root of your anger, the, the root of your lust is, is the battle that goes on inside your heart between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. So Peter goes on, verse 3, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Uh, as a parent, one of the things I find myself saying constantly is, that's enough. Uh, that's enough screen time. That's enough uh, ice cream. That's enough lollies. That's, that's enough being silly. That's enough time between showers because you smell. And so if you're a believer, at some point in your life, God has intervened in your life and said, that's enough. That's enough rebellion. That's enough living for yourself. And how good was it? that That's exactly what we heard this morning from Luke, wasn't it? That this was his life. And at some point, God has turned up into his life and said, that's enough. You're not living for yourself anymore. You're living for me. See, this is not a, you know, that's enough. That's enough having you fun, and now you've got to, you know, grow up and mature and settle down. See, when it says that the, the time that is past suffices, there's, there's actually a sense of cynicism here. He, he's saying, you, you've had enough time to waste and squander your life away, living for yourself. And so we're reminded of the, the story in Luke 15 of, of the prodigal son who, who takes all that he has and goes and, and wastes it and squanders his life away thinking that in that he'll find life, and yet he doesn't. He finds it all wanting. And so you should look back on your life and those things that you were doing before God and think, man, what a waste. Have I squandered my life? And yet, at the same time, you, you still might find those things tempting. You might find them alluring. You might be tempted to think that, hey, you know what? I'm actually missing out. And you'll be tempted to, to go again just wherever the physical desires of your body lead you to go. It's a temptation that we face. And so if your, your desire is for, for sex and for sexuality, then, then you're going to seek to satisfy that desire. You'll be tempted. If it's a, if it's a desire to, to prove yourself 
make yourself feel important, then, then you'll always be just trying to show how smart you are. Or, or you'll, you'll constantly be, be cutting others down and just really quick to, to point out their faults because you'll go wherever those desires lead you. If, if, you're, if you're living for yourself, for the kingdom of self, then, then you'll always need to win that argument. See, this, this verse here, it, it sums, sums it all up with, with lawless idolatry. Because, because at the bottom of all these things is, is the idol of self. We talked before about our three enemies, the, the devil and the world and the flesh. See, all those conspire to, to tempt us and to entice us away from God. And here it is, we, we see one of the ways that the, that the world seeks to tempt us. Verse 4, it says, with respect, to, re, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So the, the Christian life makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to the unbeliever. The, the, the word here for when it says uh, they're surprised, it means they think you're strange. See, I mean, who, who would wait until they're married to have sex? Who would, who would resolve to only marry a Christian because they'd prefer singleness over being unequally yoked? Who would, who would stay faithful and loving in a difficult and unfulfilling marriage? Who, who, would, who would give away just a, a large percentage of their income? Who, who would live life in such a way that it's, that it's not driven by success, that it's not driven by the accumulation of stuff, that it's not driven by just personal fulfillment and gain? Who would, who would give up a career in order to, to go into ministry or to become a missionary overseas. See, living as a, as a Christian should be and, and will always be strange to everyone else. And that's not strange in like a, you know, hey, that's kind of cool, strange kind of way. Because here we see one of the ways that we must be willing to suffer. That's when, when those around you malign you for living that way. When they, when they make fun of you when they exclude you or they, they just generally just don't like you because you're a Christian and you, then you live differently to them. And so where is this for you? Maybe it's in the, the office or, or on the work site or, or in between lectures, the, the jokes that everyone else is making, the, the, the things that they, they talk about. Do, do you join in? Is the, is the risk of being maligned in those moments too much to suffer? Or perhaps it's the gossip and talking about others. Or perhaps it's, you know, when you're being confronted with, with questions of sexuality and gender. See, there's, there's always going to be temptations to, to fit in. It's a temptation to, to avoid being excluded, to avoid being made fun of. The temptation to avoid suffering. And so this is where our, 
our own human desires, our, our human passions, and the world conspire against us. And the way to stay faithful in these moments, the way to endure, the, the way to win the war and not live for the kingdom of self, but for the kingdom of God, is to arm yourself with Christ. To, to think, to resolve that you will live like Christ and respond like Him. See, are you ready for this? Have you, have you prepared yourself in this way? Have you, have you armed yourself with this way of thinking? Have you taken the time to, to think wisely and carefully and honestly about the temptations that you face around you? Have you thought wisely and carefully and honestly about the danger that threatens you? Peter goes on. He, he gives us uh, another aspect of how we are to arm ourselves. Verse 4, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Verse 5, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, one of the things that it is critical for you to know, if we are to endure suffering for the sake of obedience, is to be absolutely certain, is to be absolutely convinced that all people one day will give an account to God. That He will judge with true and pure righteousness and justice. That there will be a day when your obedience to Him will be vindicated. So this is, this is the sure hope of the gospel. And that's why he goes on, verse 6, he says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, this is kind of confusing, right? I mean, what, is it, what does it mean when it says, you know, preaching the gospel to the dead? Does that mean there's, there's some kind of second chance for, for people who have died? There's a way to, to preach the gospel to people who have died so that they might be saved? Well, no, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It's not what he's saying. So you notice here that the, the preaching is in the past tense. That is, the gospel was preached to those who are alive so that now... Even though they have died, that's okay because they live in the Spirit as God does. That, that preaching to them, that the life they lived wasn't in vain. See, you're going to die. Right? That's not a threat. It's just reality. Unless Jesus comes back first, at some point, we're all going to die. And so to arm yourself with the hope of the gospel means holding on to the fact that, that this isn't all there is. That there, that there really is eternal life. That that's the hope of the gospel, that, that Jesus came. That, that he lived the perfect life that you couldn't live and, and die the death for you that you deserve in your place. So that all of your sin, all of your rebellion... All of your lawless idolatry would be forgiven. And then he rose again so that you would have eternal life. That this is not all there is. 
last week, Nick gave us the, the really helpful illustration of, of the rope that, that represents eternity, that, that goes on forever. And, and just the, the first few inches of that rope represents your life. But how much exponentially longer and how much exponentially more significant is, is the eternity of that rope that goes on and on and on? See, but when we forget about that, when, when we forget about eternally, and when all you can see is the here and now, man, sin looks really good. Fulfilling those, those momentary desires, those momentary pleasures, look amazingly good. It will be a delight to the eyes, which is what Eve experienced back in the garden. So when temptation comes and, and, and you're, you're weighing up the, the cost of obedience and, and the suffering that might come from being obedient, then you arm yourself with saying that this is not all there is, that eternity is real, that this moment is not all there is. There is eternity, and so I will resolve to live for the kingdom, not for the kingdom itself, but for the kingdom of God that lasts forever and it's worth it. See, are you thinking this way? Or do you, do you tend to forget that you're in the middle of a war? Have you, have you armed yourself with this way of thinking so that you can guard yourself against the temptations that you face? Are you actually willing and prepared to suffer in order to be obedient to God? Or do you do whatever you can to just try and avoid that suffering? See, friends, how good is it that God in His grace, that He, he wouldn't just tell us how, do we, how we are to live and then, and then just leave us to our own devices, but that He would actually give us exactly what we need in order to be victorious? that we would be armed and ready to face any danger that comes our way. So are you ready? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we're so thankful for your word to us. Lord, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example to us. And even more that you suffered for us, that we might be forgiven and given new life. That we may be faithful in the midst of suffering. Gracious Father, I just want to pray for those who are, who are struggling at the moment. For those for whom life is hard and all seems meaningless. For those who are, who are struggling to see your purposes. Lord, may they arm themselves with the weapons that you have provided, not so that they would avoid suffering, but that they would endure it for your sake. Lord, may we be a people who, who do not live for the kingdom of self, but for the kingdom of God. I pray that we might take these warnings in this passage seriously, that we would arm ourselves with the thinking of Christ so that we would always be ready when danger comes. 
So Jesus, we thank you for you. We love you. We pray these things in the mighty, mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.